0: Welcome to The Leadership Mind with Massimo Bacchus. This show is all about the mindset of leadership, the stories, assumptions, self-limiting beliefs, and perspectives that either create or destroy your ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with experts in leadership development, coaching, learning and development, talent management, human resources, and most of all, from those in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm an executive and team coach and leadership development facilitator with a relentless curiosity and passion for helping people, teams and organizations thrive in pursuit of their vision and purpose. The pursuit of purpose is a combination of doing your actions and behaviors and being how you accept and allow. The mind is where the connection between our being and doing and our intent and actions occurs. The goal is to bring you new perspectives, insights, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes, curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly, and community, where we all share in our growth together. Let's explore the leadership mind. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Leadership Mind Podcast. I'm your host, Massimo Backus, and today I'm joined by Ryan Souza. Ryan's a senior leader with over 25 years of broad industry experience, leading the creation and commercialization of transformative strategies that leverage analytics, AI at scale to enrich lives, streamline operations, and capitalize on a rapidly evolving business landscape. Ryan was the SVP of two startups acquired by Amazon and Nokia, and he's led successful implementations of large-scale analytics at Amazon, Expedia, Starbucks, and MCI. More recently, he's led analytics transformation at Seattle Children's Hospital as their chief data officer, raising the level of maturity from AMA two to seven, the fifth organization to achieve this level of maturity. In addition, Ryan has led the first commercial software spin-off for ch- Seattle Children's and sits on the advisory board of MD Metrics. In addition to these accolades, uh, Ryan has developed and promoted uh, the best practices and, and is an industry leader. He's a faculty member at the Data Warehouse Institute. He's taught healthcare analytics at the University of Washington. He's been an advisor to startups, authored many books and articles, is a guest speaker at industry conferences, and in addition he's consulted globally assisting companies to define and implement their analytic strategy to streamline operations and personalize the customer experience. Ryan, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be here Massimo. Yes. Uh, truly like quite the quite the accolades and and when you think about somebody who's been as prolific in their career as you have been and then you throw in that they've published uh, different books and, you know, thought leaders in space that, you know, kind of predated, you know, what we do today with uh, data warehousing. It's uh, it's an impressive um, set of accolades and it's an impressive story. And um, I would love to learn about how you came to be. What is your origin story? If you were to think about yourself as uh, a superhero, how did you uh, find your powers and decide to use them for good?
1: <laughs> well, first off, I think anyone who's been around long enough, I think that's kind of what it looks like. Um, so I think it's more about the years than, than, than anything else. Um, but my origin story is, you know, you know, it's funny. You always hear this. A lot of people talk about they, they, they grew up on a farm. And so, so that's my origin story, I guess, like Superman, you know, um, Except uh, I didn't come into it quite the way he did, um, <laughs> but but it was good, you know. I, th- I think you know, growing up in an, uh, a farm like that, and and uh, where it's school and and work, really, you know, at a very young age, you learn how to solve problems. You know, I mean, you're presented with issues all the time. You know, I was overhauling engines, and I was driving these giant tractors, and you know, I was 14 years old. You know, and so I think you know it, it's it, and everybody's like that. You know, you're not the only one, right? You got you go to school with kids, and that's what they do. Matter of fact, when I decided to go, you know, and and do you know um, college prep, I was this really odd little kid, you know, at school that was doing college prep because all my friends were doing wood shop and metal shop and and all those type of things. But I, but I did want to do more. My parents really were were encouraging me to go to college, and if I wanted to come back and and stay on the farm and and do those type of things. And where Um, was the farm? Where in the the yeah, it was uh, Willows, California. Uh, So north north of Sacramento, probably about an hour and a half or so on I five. And what kind of farming were you into? What were you producing? Well, it was a mix. So they uh, they did a lot of rice farming. So we had uh, we had that, and then we also had uh, walnut orchards as well. And so between the two of those, I think we had three months out of the year where we weren't you know actually harvesting something or planting something. And uh, in those three months you did. You worked on equipment and you got ready for the for the next harvest. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what you did. And so I didn't have a lot of sports. You know, I, I wanted to play baseball and things like that. It just there wasn't time for it, you know, between working on the ranch because it was a small farm and uh, and going to school. But but again, like I said, you, you learn a lot of skills, you know, working working in that kind of environment. So yeah, I, I ended up going to Davis. That was that didn't go so well. I, I kind of realized ag econ is not my thing. Um, you know, it was pretty clear to me too, in that process, uh, you know, farming wasn't something I wanted to come back and ever do. I mean, it's hard work and, and there's a lot of risk around it. And, and I had this crazy idea. There was this computer science thing that was starting, starting to happen. And, and so I was kind of curious about that. And I was doing some programming on the side just for fun. And so I decided to to dive in, which my parents thought was nuts. Um, so why would anybody want to do computer science? Once you get a good paying job, there's no future in that. Um, (laughs) But, but, you know, I think, you know, probably the big thing for me, though, over the years is I'm always put in these situations where there's a tremendous amount of ambiguity and you have to just sort of figure it out. And I think that is, it's just what I like to do. Like, it's not something, you know, I, I'm actually drawn to it. So if, I, if you look at my career and the different things I've worked on, I, I've been drawn to these things that really made me, on one hand, really uncomfortable. But at the same time, I'm drawn to it because I feel like there's a growth opportunity there right? That's why it's uncomfortable. And boy, I love solving the problem that everyone says can't be solved. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? And so like the first book I did was just, you know, I was kicking around some ideas with Bill Inman at the time. And, and he said, Hey, you know, it's great. You want to do a book with me? Scared me to death. Like the last thing I remember, if any, anyone who knew me when I was in school, and, and, and looked at this, they'd laugh because I mean, literally, when my mom was trying to teach, you know, when I had to learn how to write at home, I remember my mom telling me that, I'd run underneath the table and hide so that I wouldn't have to write. And so in a million years, who like no one would have ever guessed that I'd be working on a book or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great trip. I've worked with a lot of amazing people. Um, you know, I came into leadership early on in my career, which was, you know, a godsend in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And, and I've had, you know, and, and as a result have, have had, you know, some success.
0: So let's go back to this notion of, um, you had a, um, a story that you were telling yourself that you would never write. And and not only did you um, step into the opportunity to write and take on that challenge, um, but, but it's not like you were initially reading um, a, a best selling page turner. I mean, this was a, a pretty heady book. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that um, I would imagine made it even more difficult. What was the shift for you that, that um, had you going from, this is not something I could ever see myself doing to, um, you know, I'm I'm writing a, a technical you know piece of literature.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it wasn't something that was really planned. Maybe that's that would be the first thing to say. You know, I, I had some ideas that we were kicking around. We were calling it the information ecosystem, and and we did a few articles, and we're just sort of exploring some ideas. And I think, you know, as we started to explore those ideas, we started to to, un, to we start, what we, we, we inadvertently landed on was something that people needed, which was there's all this technology that can be used for analytics and it all looks like it's competing technology and, it, and it's it's not really focused on the problem that we're trying to solve. So how does it all fit together into this capstone image, right, in a way that people can see how the different pieces fit in applying it to solving real real world business problems? And you know, that sort of came from, you know, living through the experience and then looking back on it and, and starting to piece it together. And, and yeah, I did a few articles that that went reasonably well and we received some good feedback. And then those articles basically, um, you know, kind of with additional detail became the book. And that's kind of what got it all started. But um, but it was a it was a painful journey. Um, I said I would never do another book again when it was all done, and I was glad that I did it. And then, of course, we did a second edition of that, and then I ended up uh, co-authoring another another book as well.
0: And are they all in the same in the same vein around this, they are this um, changing people's perspective around how you know all data and analytics can actually be in service of solving a problem and are not competing uh, platforms or.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, and um, and I think you know the, the change. You know, it's interesting. I look back on that because it's been a while. Um, you know, it doesn't really get into, you know, you talk about the mechanics of it, but it doesn't get into like at the heart of it, what really makes it all happen? You know, it's like an engine without the fuel, right? And yeah. so what, what's the fuel that makes it happen? And in a lot of ways, that's that's been my, my my greatest learning over over the last 10, 15, 20 years is been understanding the fuel that
0: helps make all that happen. When you think about this in the leadership context and you have Built many teams and uh, transformed many teams and organizations. What when when you think about the fuel that makes that happen? What is it?
1: You know, I was really fortunate, really, really early on in my career to work for some, some exceptional leaders. And you know, what made them exceptional is they they provided people a lot of autonomy to make decisions. To make decisions on what they were going to work on and how they were going to work on those things, they they provided a lot of latitude for for, for making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And matter of fact, expected it, right? In a lot of ways. And this is way pre like Amazon. I mean, you hear about these things at Netflix. So there was a lot of that thinking. I was working for a company called EDS back in the '80s, and uh, and and this guy I worked for Steve Smith. You know what a name, Steve Smith. It was a real person and that's what he was right he was he was very kind of a little bit cavalier very spontaneous leader um had high expectations of, of of the people on his team and then provided them a lot of support to to realize those expectations but it but it was on you right it was one of those things where you had a lot of autonomy to sort of do what you had to to get the job done um and so you felt really empowered right in that role and you felt supported in that role and as a result magical things happened like we we did things that weren't part of the plan, but it turned out to be the things that needed to happen. And I think I was fortunate enough to be exposed to that because he was then also my mentor as I went through the leadership program at EDS. And so I got to learn early on a lot of of his his sort of style and approach. And it, and it wasn't textbook at all, right? You know, it was, you know, he he was kind of funny and he was kind of serious and, and um and and he made it kind of a fun work environment. But at the same time we knew why we were there. We knew the problem that needed to be done. And then we had the resources to do it. So I kind of carried that forward over the years, right? And and as time goes on, I I understand better why that worked and why that that environment was was effective. And I've been able to
0: apply that now in in other environments and other projects. Yeah. So um, empowerment, setting clear expectations, defining what the high bar is and and helping people get there, creating room for uh, failure or missteps, using those as learning opportunities. And then it sounds like in all of that, I mean, you could say like, that's a list of some best practices. Uh, There was the non-textbook part that is what this person's just unique personality. And I would imagine for you, you know, you bring an authentic style to your leadership and that's what makes, um, you know, the fuel to go back to that metaphor, you know, that's what kind of fuels your leadership.
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, it was always fun. You know, I I remember, you know, it, you always knew as a leader that, you know, that there, you know, and, you know, it was one, he was one of these people, right? Like he, I'd be, I would look over his shoulder, you know, at something he was reading waiting for him to finish up. And, and he turned around and look at me and, and when he was all done, he says, well, I guess I won't have to fire you today. Cause it wasn't something you, you shouldn't have seen. And, uh, but that's kind of how he was right. You know, and, you know, I, I think that spontaneity and that um, kind of like dry sense of humor you know, made for a really good work environment. And so I, I try to carry that. I think, you know, at the end of the day, people do their best work when, when there isn't a lot of anxiety, Mm -hmm. right. You know, so our thinking, you know, our, our, the more anxiety we have, we we mostly live there in our lives. Right. But if we can raise our level of thinking, you know um, where we can collaborate with others, or we can actually think outside the norms of a group, this is where wonderful innovation happens and where people get their greatest fulfillment. And so for myself, I look for ways to do that. And then I also try to look to do, do the same thing for, for the people on my team, is to really try to kind of bring that down. I guess what we talk a lot about these days is create, you know, create a safe work environment. But it, but it's, it's helpful to understand what you're trying to do in the process, right? Which is really trying to raise lower that level of anxiety and, and allow people to raise that level
0: of thinking. Ryan, what what have you found effective with reducing the level of anxiety? I mean, I think that it's always been there at some level. You think about the last 12 plus months with COVID. I remember in the early days of COVID when we were all at home and, you know, experiencing this two-dimensional Zoom world, that um, that anxiety was, you know, at an all-time high. It was palpable. And then there yeah. was, um, everything that happened throughout the summer and that it it suffocated innovation. It, um it, it's it kind of um, smothered trust I mean this is how I saw it manifest with client teams or the teams that I was leading um because anxiety was so high it was getting in the way of um the truth
1: yeah I mean I mean there's no, you can't understate the, the um the impact that a full-blown pandemic like that had on people right yeah. and and their personal lives. And I really feel for for people with with young kids and, and having to sort of juggle that. And, you know, we had the virtual school stuff going on for a while, and they're trying to juggle that. And they have family members that, that you know, are, are having issues, but they can't spend time with their family members because they can't travel. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, and, and still is to, to a large, I mean, we're, we're going to be feeling this for years to come, mm-hmm. you know. I, I would say, you know, in, in my case, I was fortunate because going into it, uh, the team that I had, had over the years developed some really deep trust,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And so, so as a team, we we didn't actually um, fall apart. If anything, we came together stronger as a product. And don't get me wrong, like I, I, you know, who knows how I can't? I don't even know how many hours I spent just listening to people talk through their issues or or try to manage, you know, through their their challenges. And a lot of times, there's nothing you can do other than listen. You know, give people space to do what they have to to sort of work through it. And be supportive, right? I mean, that's pretty much all you can do. Um, but internally, how we supported each other—it was—and and maybe this is the nature of, of being in a pediatric organization like this. People were more compassionate because they had deep empathy for what for what other people were dealing with, you know. And even though sometimes maybe we get caught up in our own little little world dramas, you know, people are sort of quickly drawn back to the fact that you know everyone else is dealing with this too and, and needs help. And my, it, it almost becomes a bit of an issue that with some of my team that they were so involved in helping other people, the, the people that, that they needed to have a little more compassionate for with themselves. And, and matter of fact, when I did the perform our performance reviews back in, in in February, that was my only guidance for most of them. Is like, you know, maybe take a little bit of that passion and take some time to redirect it to yourself, because um, I think that's the one thing that that was lacking over the year was. They're so busy helping family members and team members that, that they were losing losing track of themselves in the process.
0: Yeah, and it results in a lot of uh, burnout. You know, it does. It kind of yeah, absolutely. Um, you and I have talked about this this in the past, and your take on the mindsets of leadership, but specifically in the context of innovation in analytics and healthcare and that intersection, both in practice and application of the work that you've done, but also I think a philosophy, you know, it's almost like, um, Ryan's manifesto that I think has come out (laughs) of this work and maybe it's your forthcoming book. Um, but tell me about what, what is that philosophy? How has it emerged from the work that you've done? And, I believe that it's transferable outside of healthcare and outside of, you know, analytics, even though I know those are kind of your, your domains right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, you, 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 you stumble on things that just work and then over time you sort of try to figure out why it works, right? Like one of the things that that always works is anytime you can have decision-making where the work is done. Always creates a better work environment. People are more engaged. You know, in the end, better decisions are made. Um, you know that in order to to make that environment work, though, people can't make decisions in isolation. And so, so the answer to that is well, provide people context. So, as a leader, a big part of your role now is is to understand your team members and your teams well enough to know what context they need to make good decisions. And um, and then as time goes on, you start to realize well, there's actually you know there's some studies and some research that's been done that shows that. You know that's what you get when you create an environment that is uh, more intrinsically motivated, and uh, and you know, in, inadvertently, the things that I was doing helped to create an environment that, that allowed allowed it to be more um, intrinsically motivated. Whereas with a typical, you know, a lot of typical systems, you know, that have been around or organizations that have been around a long time, it's top down, right? It's command and control, right? It's it's sort of the sort of the nature of it. But you can't get innovation in those environments, and so. I think being part of a startup, it's the only way that, that it works. Right. Um, so that you don't have a choice, like yeah. everybody's equals and you're just doing what you have to in order to get the product out the door, build your customer base. Um, there, there, there is no extrinsic, right? I mean, that just, that, that just doesn't work. And then even with leading organizations, you know, Expedia, Amazon, places like that, they're, they're very bottom up in terms of how they, they operate. So I don't know if I'm drawn to organizations like that or um or i just been lucky, you know, to sort of land in places like that where a lot of these ideas continue to sort of get reinforced really throughout my career.
0: Yeah. Well, what advi- advice do you have for leaders and executives that um, want to delegate? They want to make sure that the d- decision is happening with the folks that are doing the work, but they're stuck either in um, an old kind of command and control model, or they just simply don't know how to let go of that decision and ensure success or allow a modicum of failure? Yeah. I mean, it's a
1: good question. Cause I, I, um, I run through that cycle, like, you know, as many years as I've been doing this, I still get myself in these traps where I, I don't delegate things that I should, you know, it's, it's hilarious, right? Cause uh, I've, I've gone through this cycle several times, even at Seattle children's, where initially it made sense for me to be in the details. And then at some point it made sense to let go, but I didn't. And I didn't know I let go until I'm, I'm working, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And I realized, holy crap, what am I doing? Like these things could very well be done by, by a whole variety of people. And I'm taking this opportunity away from them. And so not only are we getting, I'm burning out, I'm creating like a product that's less, you know, less ideal than what someone else could do. And I'm also basically sucking the life out of the organization, And, and so, so then you kind of spin it around and then you start to sort of, you know, and if you haven't done it before and you're uncomfortable with it, because everybody's a little bit different, just pick a couple things. Right. And, and the, and the expectations have to be, it's not going to be done the way, the the way you want to do it. Right. Never. Ever. Right. And, and nor should it be. I mean, I, 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 this one product that um, I had tasked, you know, this team and I talked about building. And, and I had laid it out, right? Like I've been there before. I've done it before. You know what? If you're going to build a, a product to do this, it needs to look like this. And when they, you know, six months later, when I finally saw it, because I came, I gave them a lot of latitude, I said, you know, go do it. If you need help, you know, come talk to me. Otherwise, just you know, get it done. And they walked through it. It was, it was nothing like what I had thought it would be. Not even close. Yet it was like really innovative. And it was exactly what we needed as an organization. So I think if you live through that enough times, you know, I, I've... I've made so many countless mistakes. I've lived through that same situation dozens of times. You start to appreciate that the people that you're working with actually are, are no better than you do what needs to be done. And I, and I think, you know, it, part of the reason it works is because we live in a world of incredible uncertainty. And you can plan the best plan that you can imagine. And you could, you could can you can build all the controls in place to make sure these pesky people do what they're supposed to do. And in the end, you will fail to achieve the outcome that you want to achieve. So it doesn't mean that you don't do some planning and doesn't mean that you don't have some controls, but you do just enough planning to get done, get started. And, and if you can live without controls, great. But you know what? If you have to have a few of them, great. But um, but the fewer controls you have, the less planning, you you know, the less kind of overanalyzing you do. And the more you allow people just to navigate the uncertainties you know to adjust as they need to to achieve the outcomes that need to be achieved the better off you're going to be. And uh, and there's some great books out there that get into the mechanics um of doing that as well as why it works. You know, like drive by Daniel Pink is is a great book.
0: Yep. Yeah, and,
1: and it really, you know, and I, when I read that book I was like, wow, you know what? That's it. It not only is what makes motivates me, right? It's what motivates the people on my team. You know, the idea of autonomy, right? And having like this incredible autonomy um, and so, and honestly, at the end of the day, it's so much easier to lead if you give people that autonomy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the anxiety piece, right? There's a lot less anxiety if you can actually create the space for autonomy. We yeah, it space, does need for control. Yep. There's a theme throughout your, your story, Ryan, that is it, it's meandering is not necessarily representative of, but it's very fluid. And that like, it seems like you thrive in the ambiguity, you thrive in those places where the next uh. thing is not clear. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if that's your experiencing a, a experience of it in the moment when you realize this is very unclear, or is it, once you get into it, you realize, Oh, this is unclear, but. Um, safe and manageable. And, and that's when you start to enjoy it.
1: Yeah. I, I you know, I, um yeah, it's a good question. I hadn't thought about it much. I, I do remember, you know, my very first job, you know, uh, working for EDS. Uh, I had sat down and laid out my career path for the next five years. Okay. And I knew exactly what I was going to do. The first six months was going to be this. The next six months was going to be this. By five years, I'd be running a data center. Like like I had all, all of this planned out, like the, really these big dreams. And uh, within the first two years, it was totally destroyed, absolutely destroyed. I wasn't anywhere where I thought it was going to be, but you know what, at the time I'd never had so much fun and I never felt so motivated and I never felt so valued. And so I just stopped worrying about it. You know, like I, like when, when, when I do this mentoring, you know, someone will ask me about, you know, career path and stuff, and I'm not sure I'm the best person, you know, to, to coach people on on your career path because I didn't really plan mine, you know, the, just, opportunities presented themselves, they seemed really interesting. And so then I went and pursued those to my fullest extent. And when I go in, I go in hundred percent, like there's, I leave nothing behind, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm going to make the most of it, uh, the learning of it, the, the, the create opportunity wherever I'm going and then let's see where it takes me, you know? And, and on the other end, there's always that, that other thing that sort of kind of comes up serendipitously. And then you kind of take that one. You know, the startups I was at, I'd never planned to be at startups, but the the opportunity presented sound seemed interesting. Tried it out. It was a lot of fun. And we did some meaningful work and that opened the next door and then the next door. And so, yeah, it is a bit meandering in a lot of ways. I don't know how it was. None of of it was really planned. I can't think of a single job that I've had over the years that, you know, I necessarily planned to do
0: that. It's interesting you say not planned. I, I, I hear, um, intentionality focus okay it meant um you know that that five-year plan may not have worked out the way that you wanted but you, there is something that you have that is to say when you see an opportunity that that you have interest in uh you fully commit to that without the what ifs or what if another opportunity comes back you know or comes by or you know what, what do you attribute that to I mean, that, that in itself is a superpower to be able to commit to something and throw yourself into it because that is not the only way to success, but that is certainly a way to mastery. Yeah,
1: you know, in some ways it's, its you know, it's, it's my limitation, right? I, I can't do multiple things really well, right? You know, and, and this, I learned this in school, right? This is why school was so tough for me, especially college. There's so many varied topics that, that you're having to spend time on. I would have done much better to be deeply focused in a few areas every semester, right? And then keep switching areas as opposed to doing little slices of a bunch of areas every, every, you know, quarter or semester, and then continuing to build on that, you know? So I, I, I function better that way when I can really get in and, and focus on, on one thing. So I think that's part of it. Um, of course, I come to find out over the years, more, most people are like that. I think when we get spread too thin, you know, we have a hard time really getting good at any one thing, but I also jump back too. you know, like I will dive in for a while, but then you also notice too, I've, 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 I've worked in a lot of different spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that that ability to, to experience across industries or across, you know, technical expertise or, or expertise is really important as well, because it's the intersection of all of those things that allows you to innovate. And so the more exposure you have to, to the more things the, the more tools you have available to you to help solve problems, uh, and so I think you know that becomes important as well. So trying to find a balance between those two things.
0: Yeah. How do you define innovation?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a good question. I mean, so semantically speaking, I, I think there's I, there's inventions, right? Which um, there's a lot of them out there, and and they and they don't really amount to much because they're just inventions. Nobody's really applied it to anything. So, so for me, innovation is the is is the applying of those those ideas to something, right? Something novel, something that actually makes a difference, uh, you know, in your organization. And I mean, ideally, I, I love to do things that in the end help to enrich lives, right? In some way, in one fashion or another, right? So when we're at Amazon building recommendations and, and you know, going to a world where, you know, not every sh- shopping experience was the same, but it was tailored to each individual, right? Like, to me, that was really, a, you know, a powerful concept. Mm-hmm. Or as we get into healthcare now with working in the pediatric space, if we can build analytics that can detect, you know, kidney failure, 24 hours in advance, so that physicians can engage and, and do things to avoid that from happening. Like, what could be more, you know, enriching, right, uh, than doing that, not only in the short term, but also long term outcomes. And so, um, so to me, I think, you know, that that's, you know, that's a, an important driver for me in terms of a lot of what I do.
0: And are you always clear whenever um, approaching a something from an innovative perspective, what that purpose outcome is? Is that a key ingredient in your ability to innovate?
1: It is. I think, you know, like if I had, if I had a superpower, somebody asked me, what's your superpower? I'm, I'm good at commercializing software, right? Like taking ideas and turn them into something. And so, so yeah, I, I think that's that's important um, for for all of us, right? Is 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 to do something with our ideas, and it's not always easy, right? I mean, and, and we all read about this, but it's true. In order to to turn to make innovation happen, there's a lot of failures along the way. You know, I like to say like I've been fortunate that that you know I've had two startups that I've been a part of. They both had successful exits, but it doesn't mean that there weren't a lot of failures along the way. Fortunately, the, the, the end result was good, but it, but it wasn't, wasn't like nothing was beautiful about the process of getting there, right? There are, there are a lot of failures. And then with each of those, you, you learn something really deep and insightful that then you can apply to, to the next thing and the next thing. But the idea is just keep grinding at it, right? Keep grinding at it until you get where you want to go. And so, so I, I'm, I'm pretty determined in that respect.
0: Yeah. Have you gotten better at failing over
1: time? Oh, God, No. <laughs> I, I hate to fail. Um, I, I appreciate what it is, and I and I understand that you know there's learning opportunities there, and and also to be um, what's the word, not, you know, not to be overly critical, right? So that you, again, if your anxiety goes up, what are you going to learn, right? So so you so you do things to figure out how to keep your anxiety down, so that you can experience it and learn from it. Um, but I can't say I really, I, I, I like it and I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm never, I never like it. I'm never okay with it. I appreciate it when it is, which is an opportunity, you know, to learn new things and then and move forward with it. But I don't know. How do you feel? Is, are you one of those? Do you like it? I mean, it's okay. You know, if, if, if you're good with it, some people claim they are.
0: Yeah. I will tell you uh, in the midst of failure, I'm of many minds. You know, I feel like I have multiple personalities <laughs> <laughs> in the moment. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I can look at it from the perspective of this is a learning opportunity. Let me mine it for all that it is. I can look at it from the perspective of being harder on myself. You know, you should have avoided this. You should have known better. Um, I can look at the perspective of empathizing with it's hard to fail and the people that are, you know, with me that are being impacted. Um, so there's all these different perspectives that I'm able to, to look at it. And the higher leveling of anxiety, the more chatter from different perspectives, <laughs> the lower anxiety, the clarity is you know, um, this has happened. What's in control. What do you take from it? Right. And you go into, um, diagnosing, solving, right. Question asking to figure out, you know, what this is. Um, but I I often find that all of the ways have something to offer to that, Mm -hmm. um, depending on the circumstances. And so it's, you know, for, for anybody who's an overachiever, no, we don't like failing. And we're like, well, I can do better at this while I think that can be a great motivator. It can also be destructive. So, how much how much uh, voice do you give you know that persona in the mix?
1: Well, I think you hit on it, right? So, you, you you what you're what you're communicating that you do well is is that you're you're the observer in the balcony, right? Looking looking down, right? You're um you're having this out of body experience where you can actually see it for what it is.
0: Yeah. And sometimes what I see is, wow, you really screwed up and you need to get your head on straight. <laughs> um, and, and you know, and, and that's what it is. And sometimes it's like, all right, you're gonna um you get 30 minutes to sulk and feel bad about this and beat yourself up, but then, you know, you need to uh go walk around the block and you know, come back and, and tackle this differently. And um I, I'm with you. There are people out there that say that they they love it, and if that's a true experience for them, that's great. But I, I think there's a there's a whole canon of emotions that go on when we fail because we care about something and we want to perform at the highest level and, and prove our, our worth, our contribution, our value. Um, but it can't just be a learning opportunity because there's a real impact to it as well that, that you know that impacts people at a bottom line and, uh, and a program. So why, why are we so hard on ourselves? I, I think it's because it's conditioned. Uh, tell me more about that.
1: So, so like, you know, going through school, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't like get good grades, that's a really bad thing, isn't it? It it, it affects everything in your life, your opportunities to go to college, your opportunities to, to do a lot of things. Um. So, so there, there the, the, there is an encouragement to fail because you can't afford to fail. And, and, it, and it's really strong in some cultures. So my, my wife's, you know, grown up in, in a Japanese household, you know, um, I'll remember, you know, in, in you know when when our kids were young and they were getting their first report cards, you know, a B shows up on the report card. Oh my God! Like it never occurred to her that you can get a B, right? It's just it wasn't it wasn't part of what it was like growing up as a kid. And I thought that's incredible pressure, right? Like who wants to try and take risks, right? Who who wants to? I mean, so so I think that's part of it, right? I think early on, you know, we we've created a structure even within our education system. that that certainly doesn't reward failure.
0: It doesn't reward failure. And we are a, um, a species that wants to belong and belonging is about being accepted to the group. And to be accepted Mm -hmm. to the group, you need to be of worth and you need to have value and you need to be affirmed. And, um, and what we don't teach people is how to find that for yourself. So we look to the external world and the external world feeds that through grades and, our parents saying you're smart and you did great and everybody will <laughs> and from, you know, people that get, you know, uh, large friend groups, or I guess for younger kids now, a lot of likes online, but those are all external data points that are saying, this is where you should be looking for validation. So I, I, I completely agree. And I think that we, um, we rob people of truly like the greatest resource, which is to say um, I'm enough. Yes, I failed. And you know, The most successful people throughout history have all failed and they got up again. And some of those people are only more successful than the next person because they got up one more time. Yeah.
1: Well, Van Gogh, uh, I think it was, it was a Van Gogh. I think he was one of them, right. Uh, That um, really his success came very, very late in his life, like really in, in the final years of his life and remember, he never had a chance to really reflect on it because he didn't live long enough to really experience it. But um, but oh man, his life leading up to that point, I have no idea what kept kept him going.
0: Yeah, it was
1: rough.
0: <laughs> it was really rough. Yeah, and and he probably had no idea that there would be the you know the success that was that was to befall him you know in his later years. But um, I mean, what you're getting at, Ryan, I think is at the core of uh, of any dysfunction within uh, leaders, within individuals, within teams and organizations, is that seeking for external validation and you know essentially that we've been programmed through you know our grading system and academics that if I don't get the promotion then I'm not worthy enough in this organization so I'm now going to go look for another job this happens all the time what a shame that the organization is losing such great talent just because they didn't meet this you know um finite resource. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but I think you hit on a good point there, right? You know, for 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 people to work through through failures like that, because I mean, one one of my early failures in life was was failing out of UC Davis, and I thought my world was going to come to an end. But as you were describing though, I had put so much worth in in that, right? Because you know, everyone was so excited that I was, even though it was, I knew it in my heart it was the wrong thing for me. Everyone was so excited that I got I was accepted to UC Davis and. I was going to be an ag econ major and I was going to, you know, like there was so much buildup. And um, at the time, you know, I had far less confidence in myself and comfort with myself. Yeah. And I still struggle with that. I think even as I get older, but, but at least I've come to be aware of it and and into, to, to come, you know, feel good about myself and who I am, regardless of who I work for or what I do you know, in the end i have to feel good good with me right and and what i bring 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 to you know to the conversation and not because i do like i even today like i i um i worry so much about what other people think
0: well you're not alone i mean i think that's that's true for i don't know most there's a select few who seem to be uh on the other side of that i'm curious i also uh was a college dropout and it's one of those things that as adults we you know, I don't know how you feel about talking about it openly, but I remember the first time I started doing it professionally, and it was—I was like, "Is this suicide? Are people gonna? You know, <laughs> am, I, am I gonna get fired on the spot just because of that?" Um, but I'll—I'll I'll, I'll share my story just to give you some context, and I, I'd love to hear yours. But you know, I now look back and I say I, I proudly went to seven different institutions, including my master's degree. Uh not by a plan—that was not intentional. <laughs> But uh, but but, you know, essentially six undergraduate schools and, you know, one of those was University of Washington for some GRE classes that I took to prep for grad school and whatnot. But I'll say, hey, that counts to the to the mm-hmm. seven. And um, I now look at it with with a sense of pride just because it's my story, you, mm-hmm. you know, not that I would wish that on somebody else, but it worked for me. And I'm, I'm happy with how things turned out. Um, what was the experience like for you to to let go of this, like this ideology, which is you go to a four-year degree and you're done. And then like, there is a path and you deviated from the path. You
1: know, you know, at first it's, it's always scary because you don't know what that, you know, and at the time I was having a lot of issues with, with my parents too. And, and uh, you know, you know, a lot, a lot was lost all at that one moment, right. It was failing out of school. It was um, you know, really being, you know, separated from my parents and, and mostly my father, you know, you know, I'll never forget, you know, we hung up and didn't talk for, for years after that. But I, you know, on the other hand, there's always these good things too, that you find. So at the time, you know, I, I met my, you know, wife today, you know, and, and, you know, we met in, in Davis and, and, you know, it changed me in a really big way. I think, you know, she saved my life. You know, I was heading in, I was really destructive at the time and, with everything I was going through, I had that, you know, that, that person to, to lean on. Right. And, 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 you know, to help me sort of think through this and and to to help, you know, get that confidence back up that, yeah, you know, I can get where I need to go. And then I was lucky, you know, at the time I I'd been doing some programming and I realized I might actually be able to make a career out of this. And so then I went to a different school, you know, to get experience in computer science and turned out it was, it was a good fit for me and, and it kind of took off from there. So, Right. Had had I not gone through this, I wouldn't be married to the person I'm married to today. And we've been married, you know, 30 plus years now. Um, and I certainly wouldn't be doing, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation that we're having today, or, or I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do all that I've done in my career. So, so I think you're right. I mean, things sort of play out the way they do. Um, but you have to kind of follow what motivates you, right? I think in the end, it was, you know, on the other end of that, it was liberating as hell to not
0: be there anymore. Yep yeah it's uh, it, it's really difficult sometimes to admit to ourselves uh, the things that are true like I want something and I'm terrified that I want it but the truth is I want it you know? <laughs> you know that's a that's a that's a scary thing to to tackle but those that do those that pursue the scary things that they know they want, um, such rich lives. Um, I want to be respectful of your time and, and wrap up in just a moment. Yeah, sure um, you shared a quote that you that you live by and I I don't know if you know it by memory if not I'll read it but I, I want to unpack it for a moment in the, in the last minute that we have to oh boy I have many quotes so so which quote is this one uh, your time is limited do you know this quote is this is this you saying it I don't I don't think so no so read read the quote what is it hey okay. your time is limited so don't waste it living someone else's life oh it's Steve jobs. jobs Steve Jobs
1: yeah. That was his commencement speech at Stanford. Okay. Nah, it, is so, it is so true though. Right. And uh, I, for, it's funny cause it really hit me at home because um, it, it's, I've been a bit of free spirit in that way. Right. I I've thrown caution to the wind more, more times than I can count. And, um, and sometimes most, I, I can't say I have any regrets, you know, sometimes they work out, but ultimately, you know, like the, you know, it it always kind of leads you to the next thing, right? Like, who knows what it's going to be, right? Th- this failed over here, but had it this sort of then triggers you to the next thing, and you know maybe the next thing isn't quite right. So then you go to the next thing, and eventually you start to hit on something. It's like, wow, this this is this has been wonderful. I I can't complain about my career. I, I've done so many you you know really exciting things and been able to have impact and work with some amazing people along the way and and a lot of rich experiences. But, um, but had it not been for some of the failures that allowed me to sort of move in some of these directions that, that would have never happened. Um,
0: Yeah. To, to fall forward through life and, and seize like the next day's opportunities. Uh, Yeah, like
1: my son told me one time, he's, you know, he's, he's funny. He's, he's a little bit like a, like a young philosopher, Um, you know, but I remember when he was in his early twenties, you know, he says, well, at least if I'm falling down, I'm moving forward, you know, so.
0: Smart kid. (laughs) kid chop off uh, chip off your block yeah a little bit <laughs> um brian you, you uh you're an inspiration uh and i really appreciate you taking the time to share your story and and perspective and um i look forward to you know continuing these conversations um is there anything you want the people listening to know where to find you what they should be looking for what you're doing out there in the world
1: um yeah that's a good question i hadn't thought about that um you know I mean, I I think, you know, the the big thing is don't be, don't be afraid to try something different. Don't be afraid to challenge the status quo. And, you know, and and it's hard sometimes, you know, to do those things, but, but, you know, unless you're, you're going to alter how things have already been done, you're never going to be able to do anything differently. And I think, you know, you look to Einstein, what, what did he say that you can't solve the problem with the thinking that, that, that created it? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we find that in, in a lot of the, the places that we are, and sometimes we feel stuck. But but we're not stuck because we're not allowed to go where we want to go. You know, we're stuck because of, of how we think of ourselves, and we hold ourselves back from going there. Um, and and um, there, there's, there there's there's some there's this uh, God. I, I wish I could remember this this quote. It's actually an excerpt from a book from um, Mary M. Williamson. That talks a lot about your light, right? And, and that we, we really undervalue what we're capable of doing, and it doesn't do any of us any good. It doesn't do ourselves good, any good or, or others. And so the more that the more that we can we can we can pursue this, the more that we can let our light shine. Um, it allows others to do the same. And so so I would encourage people to do that.
0: Well said, and a terrific way to end. So thank you again, and I um, I'll be in touch. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's been a pleasure, Massimo. Thank you for listening to an episode of The Leadership Mind. New episodes will be coming out every few weeks, so please stay tuned. And in the meantime, think about what stories are you telling yourself? What realities are you crafting in your mind that may not be true and may be limiting your ability to connect, lead, and grow? Thanks for listening and have a great day.